not in my house. <laughs> everybody here we are uh, shook me the mooney episode 55 aka double nickel you know i didn't even know about like the the jordan against the knicks double nickel you know where i first heard that term when i was in high school um he who shall not be named formerly of the show he could attest to this if you know we were talking but like in our high school, you couldn't get below a 55. Mm. But it's the lowest possible grade a teacher could give you for like the, the term or the period or whatever. So I had this one um, Catholic brother, math teacher, my freshman year. And he used to always say like, if you miss like a test, whatever, whatever, like you get a like that you don't have like a makeup test. Like if you you miss school all day, like you wouldn't get a makeup test. You would just get an automatic fifty five. But the way he said it, he would be like, "You miss a test, what do you get?" Like he he'd start off. He was like, "This is your first math lesson. If you miss a test, what do you get?" Five five double nickel, and I swear I heard the term double nickel. Hmm. So uh. You know, that's like a, it reminds me of I can't drive 55. I just probably be singing that song in my head when that guy would say that. Uh, but yeah, episode 55. Here we are. It's June 4th afternoon. We we're in the middle of a shower thunderstorm. Uh, luckily, we weren't recording about an hour ago. Uh, I would have blown out my microphone by screaming and shrieking. It was so loud. Uh, but it's Friday, June 4th, 2021. Uh, I'm here with Shug. Shug, how you feeling? I'm feeling a lot better, a lot better than a lot of Nick fans are feeling. Like, I have the same feeling um, today as I had after, like, the Yankees lost the 2017 ALCS. Like, I feel like the future is bright for my Knicks. As you can see, I'm wearing my shirt. Shout out to Knicks Illustrator. Um, I follow him on, on Twitter. I follow him also. It makes like these nice um sketches, you know, um pertaining to the Knicks. So he also sells them. So for those who can't see, I'm wearing a shirt and it has Tom Thibodeau, you can see that, Julius Randle, and RJ Barrett on the bottom, and it says we're not done. We we are the New York Knicks and we're not done, and that's how I feel. Um, I feel a lot more confident in our front office with the Knicks here in 2021 than I do than I than I've been shown by the Yankees front office since 2017. So um, the, the future is bright. We're not done, like the shirt says. Yeah, it looks beautiful. It has that great uh, comic book style that I'm really into. Uh, action shot, beautiful. Uh, we're gonna get we're gonna dive into the Knicks. Uh, you know, game five loss. 
and just everything else going on with the Knicks in the last few days. Um, and you got a shirt too, right? Uh, I don't want to brag, but uh, yesterday in the mail, got a I got a nondescript package in the mail. And I opened it up and I, you know, ripped it up and tore it open. And I lifted it. It's two of my, uh, uh, I'm a wannabe talk show host. So I got Johnny Carson and David Letterman. And it's not just a normal photo of them. It's when uh, Johnny Carson is talking to David Letterman in LA on the Tonight Show after Jay Leno uh, was given pretty much like the reins to the next generation. He's going to be the next host. So Letterman and him were like busting each other's balls. So, uh, and it's, it's, of course, it's from Suge. So yeah. my partner in crime. And uh, it's awesome. It's an awesome shot. And, uh, you know, wearing it with pride. Uh, you can go back and watch the YouTube episode of us. Uh, it's entitled Talk Show on YouTube. And it's me uh, about five, six, seven, eight, nine, doing my own talk show at night recording it on a huge ass camcorder and here I am doing it again. Uh, he gave, it was just a random gift. It's actually my birthday. And I don't want to say, I don't want to, I'm trying not to celebrate, but you know, uh, it was a great, uh, great gift. that made me, uh, made me smile. Yeah. It had a, a little inscription or a little message in it. Where? It should have came with it. Oh, I didn't get it. It should have came with it. I, I, well, I guess it didn't, come through but what it did say was something along the lines of i don't know which one is which but one of these days this is going to be me and you ah see all right i'm gonna look for it maybe it popped out and i'm gonna uh, i'll start to read it and then i'll do uh, my best performance and get choked up okay we'll be right back <laughs> you, you turn the channel we'll be right back guys yeah i'm uh, watching um i was watching the um history of late night documentary mm -hmm. on CNN. CNN's doing a great job with documentaries. They had um, a couple of weeks ago, they had the people versus the KKK, which was about um, a lynching that actually took place in like the early 80s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where um, the mother of the victim actually sued the Ku Klux Klan and actually um, won money but the Ku Klux Klan didn't have any money. So she actually won like their property. So mm -hmm. it's like a four part series. I'm pretty sure if you got cable, you go on demand, you could look at it. Another series, um, history of late night where it talks mm -hmm. about how, like, you know, when TV first came out and they, you know, they had, you know, basically static mm -hmm. after like 11, so they decided to start, you know, you know, they, it's always come down. It always comes down to money. They realized that you could sell like ad space or advertise stuff during the show then. So that's how the tonight show came to be. And as of today, they have like so many different late night shows. You got the tonight show um, currently with uh, Jimmy Fallon. You got Jimmy Kimmel live, which is my personal favorite. You have the late show with Stephen Colbert. You have um the late late show with um Jim Corden. Um got late night with Seth Myers, which was actually mm. the show that David Letterman started off on. True. And then passed it passed that on to Conan O'Brien. Conan passed that on to um Fallon. No, um, no, no. He, 
Well, yeah, I know it was Fallon. It was Fallon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a whole controversy because uh, there's a great there's a great book too about the late the late shift. It's about uh, it's about this this moment in time, uh, they, early nineties. Yeah, the yeah. guy that actually wrote that he's actually been featured on the documentary. Yeah. Um, and they made they made a sequel, Late Shift Two, basically. Um, and my brother read it. It's about uh the whole or the whole fiasco with Conan. Give like I remember listening uh, on the radio a guy like Z100 going to school and they're like oh in 2009 um jay leno will step down conan's gonna be the tonight show host wow 2009 that's a long time away you know i remember yeah, i remember yeah, hearing yeah. it and it's uh, funny because i didn't know like i, I vaguely knew because you know i watched like the as we said on on here like i used to watch you know vh1 and e and watch all of those stuff talking about like the 90s and stuff so I vaguely knew about the David Letterman, Jay Leno, um, you know, taking up the mantle of um, the Tonight Show and how basically like Jay Leno, like, you know, kind of like did some underhanded stuff. But then, you know, me and Mike, we actually grew up and we were like teens or in our early 20s when the whole uh Conan taking over the Tonight Show and Jay Leno not trying to give it up. And then like David Letterman was kind of like the instigator because mm. he'd have like Conan come on late on um the late show and talk, you know, they talk shit about Jay Leno and, you know, we basically lived it. So that part, that was like the last week. And I think this week is a finale and, you know, they're going to talk about, you know, the current state of affairs such as, you know, Stephen Colbert taking over for David Letterman, probably going to talk about the fact that like Craig Ferguson was supposed mm. to, he had a clause that he was supposed to take over for David Letterman and CBS went outside and went and got Stephen Colbert from um, Comedy Central. Mm. A very underrated. Craig Ferguson, very underrated. Uh, I know a lot of people, it was kind of a, an acquired taste, his style. Uh, but he did the thing where you're supposed to make, make do something different. Uh, you know, make your own little, uh, uh, get your own audience and build from that, uh, which is, he, that actually grew out of uh, Craig Coborn, um, the former ESPN guy. He did about three seasons of it and he bowed out. Uh, and then they had a bunch of celebrity guests try to, you know, fill in for, uh, you know, like a guest spot on the, the, the time slot after Letterman and Craig Ferguson won the, won the thing. And he did that for about 10 yeah, 15 years, pretty much. And, uh, you know, I, I started watching it near the end. Um, and it's weird because, like, it doesn't seem that long ago, but, like, you had to, like, watch TV pretty much during this time. Like, oh, what's on at 2 o'clock? You know, then that would end, you know, watch, like, an old movie. Yeah. Uh, like, like we, we were talking about arachnophobia. That's one of those movies that would pop on, like, at 2, in the, two, at, two at night, and you had nothing else to watch. You would watch, like, TBS or the movie channels, and a uh, talk show was right up there with that, just uh, – that's what I grew up on. Well. I, I used to be kind of my um, used to be kind of, when I was in high school. I used to be my nightly routine, and mm -hmm. uh, like I would watch like Howard Stern, Howard Stern from like eleven o'clock to like eleven thirty, and then I would flip it and watch like Conan and flip flop between like Conan and Jimmy Kimmel because you know I like Jimmy Kimmel from the Man Show. And that was like another thing that he was discussing on there too, where he kind of had to like, he was saying, you know, like I kind of had to be Jimmy Kimmel on Jimmy Kimmel Live and kind of like shake off like the character 
that I was playing on the man show and I thought it was like interesting. Um, but yeah, watch those. Um, it's a, it's four parts have been out already. The finale is this Sunday night. Um, but all our exposition, all our exposition to say this, mm. um, CNN also had another documentary this past week. Um, actually, you know, we talk a lot about how, you know, all the, when it comes to black people, they always use entertainers and like athletes to be like the leaders in the black community. That's who they choose to be the leaders. But Russell Westbrook of the Washington Wizards, formerly of the Oklahoma City Thunder and LeBron James and his um, buddy and business partner, Maverick Carter, um, both of them, uh, both players actually put out documentaries, LeBron on CNN and Russell Westbrook on History Channel detailing the Tulsa race massacre, um, formerly known as the Tulsa race riot, because, um, you know, they used to call it a riot to make it seem like it was, you know, black people versus white people, when in reality, it was the white people terrorizing this black community. Um, so I'll watch both and then Mike later on watch both and we're going to like discuss it because this year was actually the hundredth anniversary of it. Um, and it was something I was really like, you know, swept under the rug and, and I'm glad like it's getting the type of attention that it is now. Like what else we got, Mike? Yeah. But just with that too, you, you, you already said it. We're like before this, it was unknown. It was not as known. And it was also called a riot. And then now the connotation is being changed to a massacre, which leads us to what we're going to talk about too, also the way it's taught. And that's going to be uh, not just with documentaries. It's going to be how else is it going to be taught? Uh, and there's other documentaries coming out this summer on this too. We'll talk about. Uh, but yeah, so we're going to get into that. And then, um, you know, we're, we also talk about pro wrestling a lot. Uh, we're going to continue our discussion on the A&E uh, WWE Legends biography series. This time, uh, Mick Foley, pleasantly surprised. We're going to talk about this. It's a really good one. Um, but also, there's a lot of things going on currently in WWE and pro wrestling and sports entertainment that we're going to get into. Uh, so that's going to be uh, episode 55. Yeah. So you know, start off talking on you know talking about the past week in sports. Um, Mike, five games. Were you disappointed, um, optimistic, or pessimistic? Of course, it, it's it's very complicated. Much is the relationship with the Knicks that I have had as a fan. Uh, no, I am optimistic now that it, uh, now that Game Five is over and the Knicks have been eliminated. Uh, I'm optimistic for the future. Um, I'm gonna go back to Game One. I think that loss uh, really just set the tone where. Um, it was so close. Like if they got the game one, they would, I, I know they were with Knicks were home, but they could have like stole that win. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. It would, would have been fine. And it was so close, but then I was like, all right, all right. We got the jitters out. Um, you know, but then, um, they came, they were, they felt, I felt like they still had the jitters the next game. Uh, we had rely on Derek Rose too much. Um, I'm always going to hold on to that, that, uh, that amazing, um, that 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 uh, that win last Wednesday, ten days ago. I'm mm-hmm. gonna hold on to that feeling. Uh, I'm not gonna completely just like 
let let the the ultimate outcome ruin that because that was a great feeling. And I think the real Nick fans that we see a lot on social media, they're the majority now. It's not like I got nervous because um, you got a splattering, you got like a little uh, couple of boos uh, near the end of game five. And I was like, oh, come on. But it was over, it was drowned out by the standing O and the let's, go Knicks. let's go Knicks. Of course, they had a still, because uh, the Hawks, again, are a new team too. They didn't have to shoot that three. You know, they, they were kind of hot dog in it. Uh, we're getting to Trey Young too, uh, but I'm optimistic now. I feel good. Uh, I didn't expect to win the series. It could have happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever happens to the Hawks, it would have happened to the Knicks. Trust me. Like it, the round two outcome is going to be the same with, yeah. against the Sixers. Uh, but I'm op- I'm optimistic. Uh, assuming uh, assuming Embiid is healthy. Well, you know, like as far as I can always remember, you know, and, and it it goes for all sports that play. You know, best of you know, five or best of seven series where, you know, if you're the visiting team, you try to win one of the two. They always say you try to, like, steal home court or home field advantage, like in baseball, home field, basketball, home court. So you try to win at least one out of the first two games because you flip it on them because you have – if you took one in their house, you know, you could take it back home and carry that momentum – playing at home, sleeping in your own bed, et cetera, et cetera, all all the old tropes. And like Mike said, I feel like game one was one where we slipped away. I think we were up by like 10 um, early in the fourth quarter. RJ, um, the ball like bounced off RJ's back, bouncing on Bogdanovich's hands, and then he hit the three that like tied it. Um. And then we came back, we won game two, and then game three, they switched things up. And this was the part, I think, where the Knicks messed up. And I'm not trying to say, like, they should have started Alfred Payton or try to, like, defend Alfred Payton because Alfred Payton is garbage. But the thing about it is Alfred Payton was garbage for, like, a while. And one of my fears coming into the series was, like, man, if I was, like, the opposing team, I would be, like, salivating at the fact that you're – opponents like starting point guard is like basically irrelevant and my idea was I figured if you had to move on from Alfred Payton and move quickly or move as we've seen Rose into the starting lineup part of that you got to remember like Rose injury history he's a lot older now you can't like run him for like 35 to 40 minutes a game you gotta have him for like 20-25 minutes a game and I just felt like in the games proceeding, like in a regular season, like the last 10 games, like I've, I've said it last week, how pathetic Alfred Payton was. He averaged 2.8 points and 1.5 assists as a starter and was a negative. Um, if you look at the plus minus, I believe like they should have been or Tibbs should have been trying to like figure out ways in which to you know, um, either start the game off quickly or start the game off with Derrick Rose and figure out a way to, like, stagger them in. And he decided to, like, make that change in the playoffs. And I think that's – that's um, it was at a, at a detriment. Um, game five, I thought – I loved the energy in the first, like, half, basically. 
And then in the third quarter, Mike, like, I don't know if you remember it, when um, Randall shot the three and he basically did the Trey Young move that Trey Young usually gets three free throws on. He got called for an offensive foul. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then a little bit before that, he was pulling down a rebound. And usually you have to give us, you know, space to the rebounder so he could gather himself. And, you know, they kind of like, you know, shift elbows. So he got an offensive foul because his elbow hit one of the, the Hawks players. And, you know, that's kind of when it was like that murder she wrote minute. Mm. You know, that murder she wrote moment where I was just like, yeah, it's probably not going to go, you know, tonight ain't our night. But overall, like, you know, listen, it, it's a funny thing because I was like, um, there's a guy I follow on Twitter too. I follow me as well. And he, he was talking about, you know, how like, you know, people are going to slander the Knicks for losing in the first round and et cetera, et cetera. And it's a lot of like shit talking. I had to block a few people. I had to mute a couple of accounts. I didn't feel like hearing that shit. Um, but I, I, he, he, he put out a tweet. I forgot what the, the tweet was that he said, but like, forgive me. But I basically said it. I was like, listen, I'd much prefer being slandered for losing in the playoffs than be slandered for not like winning the draft lottery like we usually do. So, you know, they're going into the offseason. They got multiple draft picks over the next couple of years. They have the most cap space. Another thing I want to say is like Julius Randle, if he signs an extension this offseason, and it was a, a thought I've had the whole season, I was just like, if they could extend him because he has a team option this year that they most likely, obviously 100% going to pick up. I was like, you know, maybe you could sign him to like a four-year deal, $100 million. Um, He's getting paid $20 million a year as is. So it basically be like a $5 million raise every year for four years. But I looked at it and if they sign him this off season, they could sign him to a max deal for four years, 106 million, which would pay him like 26 million a year. Or they could just pick up the option, play out the year. And he would basically be better on, on himself. And the Knicks would probably be better against him. But then next year, they'd have to sign him for like five years, 200 and something million where he would get paid like almost $40 million a year. So my thing is I'd, I'd definitely sign him to that four-year extension, $106 million. He's getting paid $26 million. What he's shown in this series is that, and it's something like I felt in games against the Sixers this year where we got swept and games against Brooklyn where we got swept where all of those games were actually, like, pretty close. But at the end of the game, it showed that, like, he wasn't really, like, that guy that could finish. Um. So, you know, it would pay him – he would basically be getting paid if they send him at, uh, you know, four years, 106. It would pay him as a second or third option and then still make it so that you'd be able to go out and find that guy. And also, you still got RJ who – Mm. who's you know he he's he's gonna keep getting better and better um he's only 20 years old he can't even drink yet and he's already yeah. lost a playoff series so i i'm i'm hopeful for the, the next future yeah that's the whole thing now you have to you have all this time on your hand now as a fan to think you have to wonder like what's it what's the instinct the the knee-jerk reactions is to just uh blow it up trade all these picks that we have and stuff like that and because like people are always saying like is it 
I the way the Sixers did it is what I wanted the Knicks to do it, which is ironic because if we actually did get the round two, we would have been playing the Sixers, and that's like who I wanted the Knicks to be. Um, but organically, it's like kind of rare now to build a team from like the ground up like that. Usually, you have to like just add a nor art. Let's get these pieces that we need. That's like kind of like the new way. Uh, mm-hmm. Look at the Nets. Um, but I the, just I want I wanted it to be more like uh, you know, yeah. let's figure in Randall, figure him in because if the second option you said. That's like kind of like uh, less less uh, case scenario. Like worst case scenario is like, all right, we'll pay him more, but we'll do that if we don't get these other pieces. And psycho- psychologically, he might be like, all right, well, I'm not I'm not figured into your plans. Let's figure him into the plans. Have him be part of this because without him, we wouldn't be talking about this right now, you know. And then if you let him go into next summer, like he'll be an unrestricted free agent, so you'd basically be, um, leaving it to the rest of the league. Um, you'll be, you know, having, having to, to bid against other teams and next year's free agent class is like amazing. So there's going to be a lot of teams that, you know, Randall will be right there for the picking and you'll end up having to overpay for him. So rather than go into next summer and you already got Randall, you already got RJ, um, and you have all this cap space, assuming they don't really do anything, um, anything long-term this summer, you'll be going into next summer and you'll have all of these guys that will be, end up being available next year. So I'm, I'm excited. And I think a lot of people too, and people were, were making a big deal. Oh, they didn't do anything at the trade deadline, but it's like, all right, every team that basically did something at deadline, um, didn't really, it, it didn't really move the needle for them. Like the mm, heat, yeah. Clippers. Yeah. The, yeah. The heat, they went out and got, um, Oladipo, and he didn't help them. Um, the Bulls actually got worse, mm. and they traded first-round picks for, for Vucevic. Um, but I like the way that the and, – and the Knicks kept the assets. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, if they traded stuff and got an Oladipo or got like a Vucevic or something like that, you basically – you're not going to win a championship. Like, you basically just be doing that just to win a pay, playoff round. I think, like, the Knicks front office, Leon Rose, World Wild West, Scott Perry, like, they have bigger designs than not. But I, I, I like the direction the team's going. Um, and actually, the, I think the Knicks this year did a better job than the, than the, the Nets did in their – you know, 2019 culture change year. Like they were 42 and 39, barely made the playoffs as a six seed and lost in the first round to the Sixers in five games. And basically all the players that got them there aren't even nets anymore. And the Knicks this year, 41 and 31 in a shortened season. Fourth seed, they hosted playoff games. You know the the future the future is really bright for them. I don't think they peaked. I feel like mm. they're in a position where they could they could add and figure out you know what they want to be going forward. I love Dobie. They got two rookies that were um in Quickly's case phenomenal in the regular season. Obi's case phenomenal in the playoffs. You know, so the future future is really bright for them. I'm not I, I I'm not like as down 
as a lot of people. I don't know what people expected. You figure, like, the Knicks weren't going to go, like, deep into the playoffs. Do I wish they would have had a com- more competitive series, perhaps? But the thing, Mike, is, like, you know, if, if they lost in five, they were probably going to lose in six. They were probably going to lose mm-hmm. in seven. So, yeah. They are what they are, and they know what they have going forward. And that's all you could really ask for as a fan. Yeah, and of course, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, and we can get into the whole like trash talking because uh, on, on social media, there's a lot of chatter already about what's the next move. But also, there's the whole Nick fan. I think um, the majority of the Nick fans I'm seeing uh, are doing what uh, are making making Nick's nation, Nick's nation proud. Like they're not uh, they're not engaging in a lot of this nonsense. Uh, I have to give it up to Trey Young though. Like. I, of course, I hate seeing it. You know, he's like kind of like a wannabe, like Reggie Miller antics. Like, I know it. Maybe someone's getting in his ear, like, you're going to get airtime if you do this. But he, he actually came through. He did, you know, the whole bowing mm-hmm. thing and him saying, like, oh, we're on Broadway. But the whole thing with that is um, – it's, it's the first round. backed it up. Yeah, exactly. We, we the, know the outcome. It's the first round. Like, I, I, like, people are making it seem like he beat us and, like, he's the new Reggie Miller, like – those were in the conference finals, in the conference semifinals. Those were like deep in the playoffs. Like Trey Young, like he did what he did. But at the end of the day, like the Knicks, like didn't let Trey Young do Trey Young things, which is like shoot a whole bunch of threes. I think the difference in the series is they had an all star. We had an all star. Our all star, they took away his game, and the people around him didn't like step up, except basically like Derrick Rose. Whereas with Trey Young, like Bogdanovich stepped up, Capella stepped up, um, Gallinari stepped up, uh, Collins stepped up. Mm. Well, even though he had a game where he didn't score any points and talk like a lot of shit afterwards, but you know, again, Mike, it goes, it comes down to that like Houston Astros type of thing where it's like it sucks to lose, but it especially sucks to lose to a team full of like guys like with Parps. Yeah, just assholes. Assholes, just I don't. And then another asshole is the media because uh, I mean, well done. He did the th- uh, over thirty points three times in a row at MSG in the playoffs. First one since MJ. You saw that statistic. Mm. All right, but I'll, uh, I'll so blocked all the ESPN. Yeah, so all of the outlets. I don't want to hear. So they have to, you know, they have to make these head nods, you know, these tip of the catch to like Reggie Miller and stuff like that, because they want it so badly to be like the 90s and that era. They want it so badly. But then, like, if it has a scent of it, they shit on any Knicks fan right away. Like, oh, you haven't, like Dan Lebetard said, uh, the Knicks have as many playoff wins in this century as the Supersonics, you know? So, like, um, what do you want from us? Should we just... Should we just relocate, get rid of the next? Because, like, if any type of fun Bruh, thing happens, or they literally you know, like, they said we were only going to win 21 games and we won 20 more. We hosted, like, even though too. we lost, yeah, that was on Bleacher Report. Yeah, they had us bottom three in the league and we ended up top four in a conference outside of like it's like Brooklyn, Philly, Milwaukee, then us. Like, mm. I'm not, I, I can't be disappointed. I really yeah, can't. And on the bright side, the next night, I actually got to go back to the NBA tradition that, Mm. you know, the media and the NBA fans have conditioned me to do every year, being that the Knicks, you know, more often than not, don't make it deep in the playoffs, which is rude against LeBron James. And I didn't even have to go that far this year because he lost in the first round. 
Yeah, LeBron doing the early exit, much like uh, Spike did the early exit at Game Five with the Knicks. Oh, don't get me started. What I said right away was, what I said was they should have had the uh, dolly shot for Spike leaving. You know, just like with the fans around him, just that whole dolly shot. (laughs) That would have been perfect. Um, (laughs) Then he came back apparently because he heard he was getting uh, he was getting uh, he was getting shit online, so he came back. Oh, I forgot my hat. Oh, I'm wearing my hat. Okay, I gotta leave now. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, I mean. Um, but yeah, all, yeah, it's also the anniversary of uh, Knicks making it to the the finals in '94. Uh, so we just have to hold on, and we'll we'll, we'll get that feeling. But uh, not so much yeah, the Lakers. You know they what? Like, listen, champions going out in the first round. The the way I, I wanted to tweet it, but I was like, you know, it, it's 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 too soon. But I was saying, like, the fact that, like, because remember, if you remember, like, Shannon Sharp. Yeah, this whole diatribe when like Michael Rappaport, who's not a real Nick fan, by the way. Nope. About oh, you're not winning the championship, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And if you know Shannon Sharp, like he's like a fanboy for LeBron. So I was saying, like, he did all of that shit and said all of that shit for LeBron only to basically win one more playoff game than the Knicks did. But the thing that it shows is that, you know, the Knicks. They're going upward, and like LeBron, he's going like downward. So if you if you look at it for like the next ten years, things are actually looking good for the Knicks. Like in twenty, somebody tweeted out today, it was like in twenty twenty nine, RJ Barrett is going to be like twenty eight or twenty nine years old. So I'm like, yeah, that's nine years, nine years from now. So I'm 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 looking forward to the future. Yeah, me too. I agree. Um... There's nothing really negative. You really you can say um, they didn't really completely shit the bed. It's not like they they didn't act like they got prodded. Like Nick fans and, and the Knicks were getting by the media and all just like the Twitterverse. I think they we held our head up high and uh, we got to enjoy it without completely just looking like the bag or like the you know yeah. And then you know wasn't really like. A, was a mediocre week for the Yankees. Um, but the Yankees themselves oh. are like pretty like mediocre. So, but I mean, on a bright side, because I, 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 I'm not, I haven't been following. I've been so like in in engulfed in like the Knicks, mm. um, and enjoying basketball for the first time in like a long time. Not I, I haven't really been paying attention to baseball, but apparently. Like the Rays won like a seven game like win streak, and the Yankees the the Rays won the first game, and then they won the last game like which had some atrocious like umpiring, but you know it's neither here nor there. And then the the Yankees won the middle game, so I guess like that's a win of it in in of itself. That you know they split the series with um Tampa and tonight and over the weekend. Man. Boston. They'll they'll play Boston, you know, who's always, you know, we always want to beat them, and they actually like surprisingly good. I have to like give give them a, a ton of credit because they they've they've been playing really good this year. I think they're in first place. Um, but outside of the Yankees bubble in baseball, it was like a actually kind of in the New York bubble because it was something against the Mets. Um, Marcus Stroman, who. It's funny enough because he's always been doing it. He's he's been wearing like a do rag, um, underneath his cap, and 
I remember when he was with the Blue Jays and it seemed like the Yankees were going to like try to trade for him. I was like, oh, like he, oh, he pitches wearing a do-rag. That's the kind of, you know, like, yeah, black excellence. Like, I'm trying to see that shit because I know, like, you know, baseball, how it is, you know, um, they don't like, you know, the, the unwritten rules, et cetera, et cetera. So it kind of came to a head because this week, the former manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks, who was fired in 2004 because the Diamondbacks, like, got worse. Um, and actually, like, his bench coach at the time, Bob Melvin, who's a former Yankee catcher, um, he's actually won – he's been with the A's, I think, for, like, 10 years almost, at, at, somewhere around there. And he's won multiple um, ALS division titles – and won a couple of manager of the year awards. So they were saying like, perhaps like he was like the real mastermind of like the um, Diamondbacks. And also, if you remember before he was the manager of the Diamondbacks, um, somebody who I'm actually going to bring up later on in discussing Bob Brindley, Buck Showalter was their manager before that. And as usual, like Buckshaw Walter, he usually manages the team, gets them into contention, yeah. and then he gets fired, and then mm-hmm. somebody takes over, and then he takes them um, to new heights. And obviously, in Joe Torrey's case, like Joe Torrey's a great manager, like uh, there's no slight on him, but perhaps again, you know, Bob Brenly took the Diamondbacks to the World Series, won the World Series, but it was probably Buck's team. And it was probably more so guided by the bench coach who was Bob Melvin. So that was just a little background. Bob Brenly now today, he's the color commentator for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Formerly, he was the color commentator for the Chicago Cubs, which is relevant because somebody else also accused him of being racially insensitive. But he said during the broadcast, he was like, I'm paraphrasing. He was like, oh, I wonder if that's the same. I, I'm not sure, but that's the same do. Is that the same do-rag that Tom Seaver wore when he was with the Mets? And um, it, it was definitely a dog whistle. Mike, you're, you're familiar yeah. with the term now. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so uh, you brought that up a few weeks ago about Michael K. Can you remind me, what was the Michael K one uh, that he said something during the game? Do you remember? Do recall? Ah, okay. I couldn't remember either. I, I'm sorry to bring it up. Um, I wish I knew. I wish I remembered. But yeah, so it's kind of like a throwaway line that, if you actually like break it down, has a kind of a deeper meaning. So, Shug, when you when that when you heard that, like what 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 connotation did you get from that? Oh, it was racist. Um, and it's not the first time because a couple years ago, Fernando Tatis, who's like baseball's next huge superstar. Um, he said something along the lines of because he wears like a chain when he, you know when he's playing, which a lot of players do. Um, black, white, Hispanic, everybody does. Um, I know growing up, growing up, like there was a lot of players um in the late '90s and the early 2000s that wore chains, um, of all races. And he said maybe he would have a better time rounding the bases if he wasn't wearing that bicycle chain around his neck. He said that that that's what that's the yeah. one. I didn't hear that. Yeah, it's it's like it seems like throwaway lines, but that's the whole thing where it's like the micro little aggression thing, like mm-hmm. where 
it's like kind of needless um but um like it's such a it's a weird line just to begin with but like if it was coming from someone else like oh tom siever you know like it's it's a weird reference it's such a weird reference and then like do like it's so weird but then um the aftermath from that is important um it went to a, a huge extreme like he's in like sensitivity training he got, uh, he's a week off huge extreme he's taking a week off yeah he but like why back by the next homestand what is this week going to change like it's so like needless like it's such bs like what this one week is going to change is he's going to have an epiphany and he's going to be like you know but uh before i forget the fun thing about this is that um stroman sells do-rags i believe on his website so oh, does he? yeah so i I'm, I'm not sure if it's going anywhere except for him um but I, that's like the, I, brought, I brought up last week where um I think during the dark side, uh, during the Ultimate Warriors, where I said something like, uh, had a comment about it, and they used that comment for a positive, where it was uh, going to like a charity or a, a nonprofit. Um, this is kind of like the positive outcome to something that's kind of that's negative, and uh, uh, that's that's the only thing. That's the bright. That's like the silver lining from this that I see. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going to change. It's got the man's in the sixties or whatever. He's been around. He's he's been around. Well, we'll talk about it. He's been around people of different backgrounds for decades and decades. Played with them in, in the most intimate of manly places, like locker rooms and stuff. You should have this like brotherhood. You should know. But no, like he has this whole like yeah, snide because, comment. Because people don't try to get to know each other. Like for one, like the reason why people wear do rags or wave caps or stuff like that. African American men, they either are wear their hair short and they're trying to get waves, um, which is like when your hair kind of curls up a little bit um, and it keeps your, your hair like flat so that the, the, the hair, your hair rolls up a little bit. And when you wear braids, this is where it's familiar with me. Well, my hair is naturally curly, so I never try to get waves, but I have worn braids before. And you'd wear your do-rag to sleep or you'd wear it under a hat so that way, like, your your braids don't loosen and you have to take them out and get your hair braided again and stuff like that. So that's why he wears the do-rag because he has braids. You know, after every game, you're not trying to get your hair braided. You know, you're an athlete. Like, you don't have time to sit down for, like, two, three hours and have somebody do your hair. Um, and that's the type of thing. If he was, if he took the time to learn about other people's cultures, he would have probably known about. But I, I personally feel like he should be replaced because I think, like, for baseball to reach the popularity of the NFL and the NBA, you're gonna have to be a lot more inclusive, and you need announcers that are not gonna like alienate people like if you're a black man and you were watching that game and you're an Arizona Diamondback fan like doesn't that put you off a little bit and that's what I'm thinking like he should be replaced by that I don't mean like he should get fired but they should be using him in the same capacity as um Buckshaw Walter who, as far as I know, Buck hasn't even hasn't said something stupid like that before. But the Yankees, they have Buck Showalter, and he pops up on, like, pre- and post-game. And that's just his capacity. They don't have him, like, talking during games. 
Uh, maybe every now and again they will, but, you know, they just have him to talk baseball stuff. He's not going to sit down and give his musings about what the players are wearing and what the, you know, how they celebrate, what they look like, any of that stuff. He's just there to talk baseball. And they kind of used to do the same thing, too, with um, Lupinella for a little bit. They used to have him come in before or after games and stuff like that. But while you're watching the game, like, you don't need that crap. And I don't know. I can't, I, I'm sorry. I don't know the play-by-play guy. But while he was talking, like, he totally ignored him. Yeah. He was like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to, like, I'm not even going to walk into that bear trap. But I'm going to let you you sink on your own. Yeah, there's, like, the the energy in the photo, the screenshot. Because I didn't see the video. I just seen, like, the audio and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, because, like, the one guy is, like, he knows, all right, let's move on. Um, and it's not even, it was not even in like, oh, oh, I thought, I thought I could say, I thought like it was, it was like the reverse. Um, remember when Kanye said, um, (laughs) George Bush doesn't like black people next to Mike Mike Myers. Myers. He was like, okay, okay. Okay. (laughs) I like that because Mike Myers like went straight into a bit voice. I know he was like being serious, but he couldn't help but be like, okay, a bacon powder. Like he was doing like Wayne. That's that's what uh, I mean. It was a serious time. It was Katrina, a serious thing. And and when he was with the Cubs, like Aramis Ramirez, um, he talked to Deadspin and he talked about how, I mean, not Deadspin, he talked to the Athletic about um, when he was broadcasting Cubs games, like the closer he got to free agency. Like he would be um extra critical on him, and they also said he was critical on other Hispanic players, and he would just say things like, "Oh, like he has all these RBIs, but I don't think like he's a clutch hitter." It's like RBIs is runs batted in, so like isn't that the point of the game? Like I'd assume if you if you come up to the plate and somebody you you knock a guy in, like you're clutch. Yeah, like target. Yeah, it was he was targeting. Uh, usually, it said that it felt like it was uh, he was attacking like Latin players. Um, so, what I'm, you know, because what I'm gonna say is I'm offended by like his like obviously cut and paste. Um, okay, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't uh, demonstrate my true values as a person. And it's like, well, yeah, it does. Like, I don't get it. Like, how is this? This is the statement. It was offends me. Is it seems so hollow and so like, all right, let me just appease them. Just give me a week. It's, that's kind of like what they used to do. Like, all right, go away for a week, come back, and we'll just uh, yeah. Uh, pay vacation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that. But by, by the time you come back, everybody will forget about it. And it's like, nah, because as you've seen, there's a pattern with this guy. So more than likely, he's gonna say something stupid. Like if you give him enough time. Yeah, but so where does this go? Like. um uh, I mean, like, to just wait it out because, like, you know, he's gonna come back and he's gonna be on it. He's gonna be like watching his words and stuff like that. But he still has like thinking these things. You know, it's like, what do you do? You like, I mean? it's I, like, well, like I said, if he's that valuable as a baseball mind, you put him into that, you know, that analyst role of you know pre and post game where you you feed him specific like. I feel like if you have him doing like color commentary during a game, like we've seen it with like John Smoltz, where they just, you know, give like their random mm-hmm. thoughts and they don't really have nothing to do with that game specifically. Mm-hmm. So then you give them not that, you give them that room to just like say whatever on a, whatever, whatsoever is on their mind. You know what I'm saying? Whereas like if you put them pre and post game analysts, they'll be like, 
well, Bob, like, yeah, he pinched it, um, the pitcher and did a double switch and like the six and, and, um, what do you think about that? You know what I'm saying? And then he could specifically talk about that. But now if he says, well, he brought in, uh, this guy and he was wearing this big old chain yeah. and he struck out, you know, we that's when we... you probably have to fire him then because now you, you yeah, know, we've, we've given you the opportunity to, you know, You've shown that your personality is shit. <laughs> we don't yeah. like your personality, but you're still years and years of uh, of experience. You know your numbers, uh, but if you're just dropping like stats and everything, but like doing little uh, cute little colorful comments during it, uh, we can find someone else that can replace you. Who knows the numbers as well? Like they know what the analytics yeah. and stuff. But like if you have Paul O'Neill and Michael K and I know her, they start like saying this like outlandish stuff, and you don't want to hear it anymore. Uh, then you won't see Paul O'Neill. He'll he'll turn off his Zoom and he won't be uh, doing commentary. If he says something crazy like, "Hey, Mike, did you notice I was on the beach? I was on the beach earlier and I noticed this guy." Like he's just saying this weird. Uh, if he says something weird like that, uh, you're gonna turn people off, you know? Because everyone everyone knows the knowledge, you know. Uh, I'm sure. Well, it's Arizona, so he, he must be, you know, he won there, you know. So they, they like him mm-hmm. for that. He has, he's a name there um, outside of that market. Uh, you know, they can just have replace them, but uh, mm-hmm, yeah. personality-wise, you know, it's yeah, like you know. But if if it was playful, like you know, like you can you can it doesn't have to always be like uh like you know watch what you say. But if you have a relationship with someone like that, obviously this guy does not. So that's where that's where the. I mean, he won a World Series with um you know shameless plug here, um Kurt Schilling. Watch our video on Kurt Schilling, um the black seats on our YouTube channel. For our <laughs> thoughts on that, but you know, that Randy Johnson. Get... Randy Johnson's a prick too. Yeah, it's a, I. He is. I was They're a just, fan, so not I my cup of tea. Not my cup of tea. <laughs> I see. I've seen him on. He pops up on uh, these pl- playlists, and he's talking about like things that are. Yeah, but you know, talking about racial. Um, next topic we're gonna talk about is very serious about race. It's something that happened a hundred years ago to this week. Yeah, so Mike, when when's like the first time you ever heard of the nineteen twenty one Tulsa race massacre? I remember uh, I I used to go on I still go on these just uh, Google Wikipedia searches and just go down like rabbit rabbit holes of like just like history that you're not really you don't really know. Yeah, me too. Uh, like there's like podcasts it's called like uh, unknown history and things like that. But like I think in the late two thousands, early two thousand tens. I was, uh, and there's also a book that I was reading. It's not in the book. It's not in the book, but there's this book about the the creation of the the American West, and mm-hmm. there's many similar situations that happen uh, that later on I'll bring up. But um, this specific moment, um, I think like like ten years ago, I was just on the internet, and I had it was not in an academic uh, arena or anything like that. I just came across it, and um, it wasn't even. Uh, it was just words. It was just worse, so the, I didn't see images or really like that. So uh, it it really came to life now, which is crazy. Hundred mm-hmm. years later, and I'm 30, 30 plus years old. You know, what about you? Yeah, like oddly enough, I was a big fan of um, Fifty Cent at G Unit, and they signed the game, who was from Los Angeles, Compton, and. You know, this was during the time, like, every rapper had their own, like, label or something like that, their own little offshoot. 
So he was starting a label out in LA called Black Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually he got kicked out of G Unit and um, you know, focuses attention on Black Wall Street. So he was talking about, yeah, I based it off of like Black Wall Street in Oklahoma, da 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 da. So then I did my own research, and this is back in like 2005, and read about it. And again, they called it like a race riot. Um, the inciting point was a white woman being sexually assaulted by a black man. But, and that's how it was reported at the time, but fast forward to today when more and more details and more and more um, actual accounts, because there were plenty of survivors that couple who live are still living today, like a handful, Mm -hmm. um, who are in their like, you know, hundred like a hundred and something years old who at the time were like five and six and like you know children and also um i think the tulsa like a black um representative from oklahoma for tulsa actually went around and interviewed people in the late 90s so at that time you're talking about people who in like their 60s and 70s that like lived through it um, and more and more details came out. And as we said in the beginning, um, two documentaries were put out, one produced by Russell Westbrook, one produced by LeBron James and his business partner, Maverick Carter. Uh, Russell's was on History Channel, which was about two hours long. And LeBron's was also two hours long. And that one was on CNN. And I've said to people that you should watch both because they're actually like complementary um, to each other because there's some things in the Russell one that didn't make it to the LeBron one, some things in the LeBron one that didn't make it into the Russell one. Um, some, I think the people in the Russell one was actually like footage that was like recorded probably for something else on History Channel because some of those same people showed up in the LeBron one and they they were like notice noticeably like older than they were in the history channel one but both of them they 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 had a lot of information like first and foremost oklahoma that was originally after the civil war was indian territory and if you've heard anything about like the trail of tears or in the the indian removal act what they essentially did was send the Native Americans who were all over the South um, of the five like civilized um, Indian nature, nations, they basically sent them out West so that, you know, the white people in the South could take over and the U.S. government could take over their land and, you know, um, you know, seize it. It was basically like, all right, we're going to take all this land that you already built up and established through generations and generations. And we're going to give you all this land out West. Meanwhile, like out West, it was basically like wilderness. So these Indian nations, they actually had slaves. Um, And when the civil war was over and slaves were free, 
in the Indian territory, they were actually recognized as citizens. So the same afforded the, the same parcels of land that were given to the Native Americans were given to African Americans. And they basically established like what became Oklahoma. And Oklahoma actually, or while when it was still like a territory, um I kind of like understand the situation um prior to Oklahoma becoming a state because I'm from a uh, United States territory in the Virgin Islands whereas basically we're not like a part of the United States of America but we are citizens of the United States of America um so that's essentially what the area that's now known as Oklahoma was um operating under and they tried vehemently to stop um, Oklahoma from becoming a state because if you became a state, you also receive um, the racism and the white supremacy and the Jim Crow laws and stuff like that that the other United States um, were operating under. And sadly, that's what ended up happening fast forward to the early 1900s Tulsa became a booming town because of the oil and there was a pocket of the area of North Tulsa called um, Greenwood which was huge it was like 40 blocks so uh, I don't know Mike how you like compare that that would probably be like you know from like midtown Manhattan to like the Upper East Side, maybe I don't I don't know if I'm if that's a stretch because like I thought it was isn't it forty acres like I think one of the early uh, people that established it was the the amount of land was about forty acres and that's thirty five blocks so I don't know how I can, can compare it to maybe uh, Upper East Side I don't know yeah I mean it was like a good amount of like space um. And what they essentially did was they established their own community and it was like its own like self-sustaining community. And the thing about it is like the people I lived there were black and they were basically shut out from the white community, but they would be hired in different capacities as like, you know, domestics, maids, butlers, um, service workers, you know, stuff like, you know, different menial jobs. But what they would end up doing is taking the money that they earned in the white community, but spending it in the black community, which helped the community boom and boom and boom and boom. And there was a part, I believe it was in a LeBron documentary. And this is the one thing I definitely wanted to make sure I said when when we record this is that because it stuck out to me, this part where it was saying like there was like a railroad track. And that's a common theme in like the South, the separation of the black community and the white community is always like a railroad track in between. And that's where the, um, the term other side of the tracks came from, but Greenwood and the white part of Tulsa was separated by these railroad tracks and what the white community, the racist white community would see is black people wearing furs and um nice tailored suits and driving these nice cars and remember this is a time when cars like first were like 
invented. Uh, so so seeing it's like seeing somebody like driving like a Tesla today. Like every single car was like seeing somebody driving a Tesla. So and it's like if you were white and you already have this like inherent um feeling of superior of su- su- superiority already over African American people and you you know like this black man this black family has a car and you're still like you know you 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 barely even have like a horse you know that that was one of the the things and that's one of the things that that the 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 massacre um was one of the inciting things in the massacre was just like the jealousy from the white community towards this community of black people who were doing well they had their own movie theaters their own surgeons their own churches their own um hotel they had like the finest Mm. black hotel in the country tulsa yeah um j jb uh stratton uh i can't see stratford stratford yeah i think uh, you, they had their own newspaper as well. I forget mm-hmm. that. So Tulsa store. So, so there was no um, gatekeeper. You know, it's like it was like the community paper. Like all the things that they wanted needed to know or wanted to know. Uh, it wasn't. Fil- it, it wasn't like uh, you know. It, it wasn't like you know separated or filtered or uh, have to go through someone like telling them like, oh, this is what you should know or this is what you need to know. Everything else we'll know. Uh, going back to the Civil War. Uh, not many communities went out west, forcefully or by choice. Um, so they. So what I'm going to say is this: where they established this part of Oklahoma, many different townships around the west. Uh, this one was thriving, uh, and then you had other communities too that were starting from kind of scratch. Like you have like the Euro immigrants too coming out west. They were doing their own thing too, with the Black Wall Street. Uh, which we'll jump ahead to 1921. Um, they were doing the same thing that everyone else was doing, but they got, uh, you know, they got a, phys- you know, their opportunities were cut short because of this massacre and everyone else was allowed to keep going. Mm-hmm. And this was completely, which is a common theme on our show that we talk about. We talk about the World War II GI Bill, but much like that, they had to start over again. And actually they actually are still where they were pretty much. Uh, which is why 100 years later it's important and why it's in the news today, not just because it's an anniversary. It's actually because uh, things need to be put into effect today uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, people talk about uh, 1921, but in 1620, you had the Mayflower Compact. Very similar. People leaving, they come over here. They're just a body of people. They decide to like govern themselves uh, established their own very, very, uh, you know, capitalism. They made their own businesses, uh, their own towns. Um, 300 years later, you had a similar thing going on in, uh, Tulsa and in Greenwood, you had this same similar thing and it was completely just wiped out. Mm -hmm. You imagine that, like, that's, what's very significant. 300 years went by. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So, Tulsa actually never had like a lynching before this. They actually like, you know, it was basically like the the blacks, you know, stayed out of the ways of the whites, and 
you know, they, they avoided all of that. So then the inciting incident, like there's racism, like just littered in every single aspect of this. So the young man, um, Dick Rowland, he worked in a shoeshine parlor and a shoeshine parlor wouldn't allow black people to use the restroom. So the owner of the shoeshine parlor arranged for a building like a block over on the fourth floor that had a colored bathroom for his workers to be able to go there whenever they had to, you know, relieve themselves. So that in of itself was the thing. So he goes to the the building, gets on the elevator. They have a um, young white woman, 16 years old. He's 17 or 19. He's, he's in his late teens. And this is back in the days when they actually had to have somebody manually operate the elevator, um, you know, through like some kind of like crank or something like that. And this is like a young, like white girl, you know, take with that what you will. So what they said was on the elevator, like how it was operated, sometimes the elevator wouldn't be level with the floor that you were going into so i guess in the moments where she was like evening the floor the elevator floor with the building floor the elevator rocked and in his like natural motion to like catch his balance he reached forward and he grabbed her arm and i think like her her out her her uniform the arm of it was ripped and she screamed and somebody in the vicinity, another, a white man heard the scream. So Dick being the time that it was, remember this was back in the days where you couldn't even like walk on the same side of a street as a white woman in um, some places. Um, he ran for his life cause he knew it wouldn't look, you know, it, it, it probably wouldn't end up rape, you know, Things wouldn't end up good for him. Uh, the man who heard it, he calls the police, said she'd been attacked. So they go get him. They're holding him in the top floor of the police station where the cells are. And a white mob, lynch mob, you know, comes in and they're trying to do their own form of white supremacist justice. You know, they, they wanted him and they wanted to string him up. And some World War One veterans, African American World War One veterans, arrive to, you know, offer their services to protect the prisoner and the sheriff, who most likely was, you know, a Klansman, declined and told them to leave. And one of the members of the lynch mob like an older white man says to like one of the black men what are you doing with that gun tries to grab his service pistol and in the tussle a fire a shot gets fired off and i was you know as they said in the documentary all hell broke loose and that's when they stormed in they they, they essentially mike they really just needed a reason and I gave them a reason because I'm, I'm assuming like white people wanted to, you know, destroy 
this, you know, growing and booming um, community. And they just needed a reason why. And it also didn't help that the newspaper, the white newspaper at the time, basically um, wrote it as if, like, you know, he raped and, and assaulted this young lady. And the young lady actually later on after all the riot and, you know, after the massacre, you know, um, dropped all the charges, you know, and said she wasn't attacked, you know, she was just, you know, it, it was just a misunderstanding and not, not much is known what happened to Dick Rowland, but I assume, um, you know, what can be assumed because we don't know what happened to like a bunch of these people. And they also, at the time they said only like a handful of black people would like died when in reality it was like in the hundreds. We'll get into that. Uh, yeah. The upwards to like half a thousand. Uh, that's another serious thing. we got to talk about mass graves. we got to talk about documentation of people actually who died. Uh, but you mentioned that, uh, it was a, a white woman. That's a common theme. Um, I mean, we talked about this before, Emmett, Emmett Till, uh, Central Park Five, you could talk about um, many instances where it's this theme of uh, the, the black man and like the, the white woman. Um, you mentioned World War One veterans, black veterans, which is for white, white people to be like, oh, these people are nervous because these are like organized men who are trained. Um, what do I always say, Mike? Black people, the blacks, um, veterans from mm. these times you know they were essentially treated like second-class citizens memorial day just passed and I, that's the one thing i always say i'm like i just want to pay respect to the black veterans that you know lost their lives or sacrificed their lives and were willing to sacrifice their lives for this country that came back and were treated basically like um one peg before one peg above cattle basically so world war one um you know you have uh, uh wilson president wilson uh he's famous or infamous for uh screening birth of a nation at the white house mm-hmm. okay so that's the late teens um the, the movie came out in 1915 during world war one uh people are seeing these images on their screen uh, on, the, on the film like they're seeing the this heroic pretty much which brought back the clan um from being dormant was this movie this film about uh the heroic history of um the kkk and if people who are listening to this just watch uh forrest gump they do like a uh kind of like a they they there's an allusion to that film and that whole movie it's showing uh there's scenes where there's like a white woman in distress uh from like a brute like like a scary a black person, black man, and so like just like today, the media is kind of like showing these images and kind of influencing uh, people's uh, thoughts. So same exact time as this, uh, a lot of people are saying that um, it kind of helped influence people's uh, dehumanizing of uh, black people, and this is one of the results, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know so much was lost and a lot of these people they had to flee and basically never return the other thing that they did was they passed like a fire ordinance so even if you had the means to rebuild um your home or your business 
like you weren't allowed to. And a lot of insurance companies, this is why we keep on bringing up the fact that it was initially being characterized as a riot and not a massacre. A lot of these insurance companies in those days when, you know, these, you know, you had hoped that after this insane um, series of events that, okay, I've been paying insurance all of these years. Um, my how my home or my business is insured that I'll be able to get the money to rebuild. A lot of these insurance policies basically had like if you lost your home in a riot or some kind of like public disturbance, like you wouldn't um, be able to claim um, insurance money. So that also left a lot of people screwed, basically. And Stratford, who owned a hotel, J.B. Stratford, who owned a hotel, owned different like boarding houses and apartments and stuff like that. Um, he had to basically leave his fortune and flee. And we're talking about he he was supposedly worth like two point seven million dollars at that time, which should probably be like a hundred like hundreds of millions of dollars today. A matter of fact, I think in one of the documentaries, they were like, you know, if this event never happened and history was to play out where this community was able to, to thrive and um, go through history as other different communities went on, like J.B. Stratford would probably be um, mentioned um, in the same light as like J.W. Marriott or Conrad Hilton. Mm. Could you imagine that? Like, if you actually had like an African American um, hotel magnet, somebody that black people could look up to. Mm. And uh, a result of that is having, uh, like you said, you mentioned how like insurance wouldn't cover it. Uh, it happened a lot. It happened in Europe too during World War II, um, where you know you just lost everything. And then during the whole uh, time that people were in power. They lost people lost rights and then here uh okay what so what's the solution to this in, in the 1920s all right so let's let's figure out a way the government okay the government tries to help you know or is put in place to help but then you're relying on you're not relying on yourself anymore and the whole point like you said other communities were doing were growing at the same time uh when you hear the term like uh made uh black uh for blacks like made by blacks and um you know everything is like that was happening all over the place with other communities too. And they eventually like grew from themselves and then they grew out to be like America, you know, mm -hmm. they didn't have the ability to uh, be self-reliant anymore. Yeah. And, and people think a hundred years, okay. All right. So my maternal, my paternal grandparents, they would be a hundred to 105 right now if they were alive. Cause my, they had my father late. That's only how many, you know, that's, only, that's, I, I knew my grandmother, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and there's three people that spoke uh, recently. Viola Fletcher, uh, I have them all. You know, they all spoke to Congress and everything, trying to get a, uh, you know, the whole point of not just reconciliation but uh, accountability, mm -hmm. uh, because the government w was supposed to help, but they got stuck in a vicious cycle where generation to generation, you were reliant on the government, you weren't relying on yourself anymore. Uh, and America is all about capitalism and th they were doing like the right thing. They were doing the most American thing was 
building their own communities and everything. Oh, and listen, it's, Ameri- it's America. What's more America than that? You know, it's the same thing as the Mayflower. If you, you remember know? all the riots and stuff in Ferguson or in uh, Minneapolis, how people were talking about, oh, like how does looting and robbing and setting businesses on fire? How does that help a community? Like during this riot, like they would break into people's houses and steal, like the the white um rioters would break into people's houses and businesses and steal their life savings and and um valuables and all that stuff was basically just taken from them so they were taken from the black community and bringing it back to like the white community the other thing about it is in the aftermath they basically rounded up all the african-americans like prisoners and you basically have to have like a white person like vouch for you in order to be released out of like these internment camps so these were the victims and they were basically being treated like prisoners um and the one thing i've heard from people who've talked to like the survivors or people whose relatives or their grandparents or parents were survivors that are living today was just that like they're like whenever they brought it up with those people it was so traumatic to them that they didn't even want to talk about it like they would start you know it it would be so it would be hard for them to even try to to discuss it because it was so terrifying to live through but they also uh it was organized they they bond neighborhoods yes and it was it was the most it was like the first aerial attack on the United States, not yeah September 11th or Pearl Harbor. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, like it reminds me of like seeing like the suburbs and like the, like Chicago, like how that looks, and then just getting like wiped out because like it's like photos I saw of uh, Tulsa, uh, but I can see it being like overhead view on an airplane. It's like it's insane. All right, so you have a uh, 106 year old Leslie Randall uh, when she spoke to congress recently one thing was uh i'm just gonna i'm just gonna take an excerpt my opportunities were taken away um you know uh it's still like this it's not just 100 years ago it's like ancient history it's relevant it's like i said there's people living uh once removed generation you know like i said if it was if it was me it'd only be like two generations ago uh and i I, was someone i actually knew and you have uh Viola um, Fletcher, uh, this is what she said one time during this. I went to bed in my family's home. Uh, the neighborhood uh, I fell asleep in was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, heritage. Uh, my family had a beautiful home. I had a bright future. And then this is like going to the next day and then everything changed. So that was kind of a powerful statement from her. Um, and you had another gentleman uh, who's a hundred? He was still he's still around. Um, Viola also said, "I see, I still see, but she still sees black men being shot, black bodies lying lying in the street. I still smell smoke and I see fire. Like it's like real. It's not just some ancient history thing, um, which is like kind of uh, needs to be re uh, reaffirmed because it's it's on the History Channel, but it's still." You know, it's that's the thing. It's on CNN and it's on History Channel, which is kind of an interesting 
take on it because it's it is history and, and but it's saw, still living now it's like living she, present day and she said she could still see like vividly black men getting killed shot in the street right imagine mm-hmm. what it feels like for her seeing like george floyd right it's, yeah, it, see, yeah. yeah it's like it's not it's like nothing new and it's a hundred it's a hundred years later i always say like but one thing i always say i say this about like the most serious of things i say it about the most serious of things where People see it for the first time. Like we opened the segment saying, you said, Mike, when's the first time you heard about this? It's new to you, but you know, it's happened over and over again. And um, I keep going back to how it's on CNN, which is 24 hour current events. And then we have it on history channel, which is like the go-to history, which is, you know, thousands and thousands of years of civilization. Um, you know, a, this is a, a group of people, also a system, but this is just an actual act. Um, actively is something uncivilized. You know, they were, they, they went in the way of uh, civil, you know, growth. Like, civil, this is like every other community had kind of had the same moment. Like, um, it's sad to say that, oh, I'm comparing them to immigrants from like Europe and everything, but because they were already in America for mm-hmm. hundreds of years, it's sad that you have to compare them to that. And you also have to compare them to like the Native Americans too. They were there but they were starting at the same time after the civil war as immigrants were, where like people who came over here were soldiers. Um, if they're on the union union side, or if they're, you know, Confederate, uh, they were starting over again. Cause like America started over again, 1865. Um, the safe haven was Oklahoma for a lot of uh, black Americans. And uh, that was a threat, you know, yeah, uh, and it, it happened all over the West. It happened all over the West. You can look mm-hmm. it up. And it's like, you know, the amount of like predominantly African American cities that are like thriving, thriving today, like Atlanta, um, Charlotte, New Orleans. It's like, but those are cities that were still like predominantly white, but just so happens that now you're seeing a lot more like affluent black people in those cities. And it's like if Tulsa and Greenwood were able to grow with time. Um, and that's the interesting part about it too, Mike, because it's like essentially Greenwood and Black Wall Street was basically started in like 1906 and was ended in 1921. So it was only around for like 15 years. So it's like imagine what that would have been like in like 2021 if it was allowed to grow at the same pace that it was growing back then, like it, it, it was so in within 15 years, it was such a thriving and booming com- community that was basically like cut off in like infancy. And it would have probably been like the, um, it probably would have been the blueprint for more and more, um, maybe not cities but communities within major cities as to like okay this is how african americans can can thrive you know mm. but the thing is like it was like i don't know I'm, I'm putting it this way but they were playing by the rules set up for them mm-hmm. and they were still like that's why I, I keep bringing up the mayflower like these are the rules are right, this is how america is going to be a capitalist we're gonna uh the government's gonna be like this we're gonna follow this do it do what you gotta do but we're gonna follow this this blueprint uh while they're on the boat coming here and and this you know in this tulsa in this uh 
with Black Wall Street. They were doing everything they were supposed to, like supposed to, mm-hmm. and it was taken away. That's yeah. that's and like the real tragedy. And please, it. like, please do remember that even though this community like thrived and was self sufficient and stuff like that, like they were paying taxes, and due to the fact that it was like predominantly African American, like the tax breaks and the infrastructure and stuff like that from tax money wasn't being redistributed redistributed into Greenwood mm. like it was in other communities. So, and, and who knows if where it would have been government wise, like, because of course you need money to get into government. Mm-hmm. Who knows where it would have been uh, over the decades after this, uh, like all the other communities that grew, like you talk about like Hollywood, that was uh, that was the same exact time as this. That was starting, um, like it almost failed during the depression, but it stayed there in the West. And that's like uh, our biggest export in America is like Hollywood, right? You know, it's like entertainment. And who knows if they would have had their own, uh, not their own, but who knows if they would have been a part of something else out West where self-sufficient too. And then that's the whole thing I keep going back to is that it was exactly, because Native Americans, uh, they were put on reservations and they mm-hmm. try to hold on to their old ways. Uh, even though at the same time they were also going by like the white ways too, like trying to like survive that way. In here, it was the same thing going on in New York. Wall Street was like happening here, and this was taken away. You know. Yeah, and you know it's not just like the community that would have been inspiring. Again, it's the people. Um, there are a lot of different people. Um, whose names were mentioned there, but I I don't have in front of me right now. But of course, J.B. Stratford, you know, this is somebody who would have been like a hotel magnet. And he could have been an inspiration for everyone else. You know, how I began this is like, when they talk about African-Americans, they always put up like um, athletes and entertainers. You know, it's rarely like, you know, somebody of like great means or somebody with a lot of financial, um, like a wealthy person, you know, the biggest inspiration to like black kids today would probably be like Barack Obama. And I was just like 2008. So, you know, um, just like, yeah. So if you listen to this, like if you have on demand or it comes, you know, check your local listens, if it's coming back on, um, check out both Russell Westbrook on History Channel as well as LeBron's documentary on CNN. They're both two hours long, you know, skip through commercials, stuff like that, probably like an hour and a half. It's well worth the time and it's a lot of information and a lot of independent research you could also do. There was a lot of... um it was a lot of articles being written by New York Times, Washington Post, describing um, these different events. As a matter of fact, there's one I'm reading right now and from the Washington Post about other oh. race massacres in the country. And then the one on New York Times, it came out like about a week ago. It actually was like a virtual tour of Greenwood and the different businesses and the different areas mm. and stuff like that was really cool. Yeah. I saw that. I checked that out. Uh, and of course we're humans. 
the very important thing for us is like anniversaries, seasonal, uh, it's a hundredth anniversary. Uh, that's why it's really in the news right now. Um, but also this is like one of the first years where it's like a national holiday is June, Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're also having uh, another documentary coming up in a couple of weeks. And it's, it's all about um, the mass graves and it's a uh, Dawn Porter, uh, Washington post, I believe she is going to her, she's in her hometown and it's, uh, it's on natural geographic and Hulu same day, June 18th. Uh, and it's about the, it's Tulsa and the red summer. So it's not just them in Congress, like, you know, making their case, like, Oh, reparations and, or just accountability from the government and everything. And, uh, they're still investigating actual, how many people were lost during this 18 hours. Um, and then of course, all over the country, there's many, many other unknown stories, just like Tulsa or, uh, you know that we'll, we'll have to keep going. Can't just forget about, you know, it's, it's, it's history, but it's also our present day, uh, American heritage for worse, better or for, you know, whatever. Right. All right. So this week, um, a lot of, a lot of talk, a lot of chatter on Twitter and social media about WWE, uh, because it seems like this is like the third or fourth time in the past year and a half, uh, big, big firings, uh, future endeavors. And, uh, this one stands out because you have uh, someone who is the epitome of WWE, in my opinion. Uh, you had a Braun Strowman mm-hmm. being released. Like that's like the epitome of sports entertainment. He's kind of like the he, he the the uh, flag waver for sports entertainment, and now he's no longer uh, part of WWE. Uh, we have another uh, five others. We have Aleister Black, mm-hmm. someone I know of. Um, I, I I get I get their his popularity. Um, if Lana, who's uh, WWE diva, you know, she's also in-ring competitor. Uh, she's real life married to former WWE superstar uh, Rusev, who's now with AEW. Um, we can get into that too. Uh, Ruby Riot, who was part of this uh, a couple years ago, you had a bunch of NXT superstars get called up, and uh, it was kind of they all they all got put into different groups, mm-hmm. uh, and then just kind of stayed there, you know. Uh, who else do we have? We have um, Buddy Murphy. Buddy Murphy, who uh, had a good run with Seth Rollins. Like he was kind of like the um, like a henchman for Seth Rollins for a while. And Seth Rollins is another WWE through and through guy. You know, like uh, the epitome of WWE. So that's another release. Um, and then you have Santana Garrett, who I, I'm familiar with from non WWE stuff and NXT stuff. So she was also released. Um, so, you know, just when you first see it, you think about, oh, right away, um, oh, they were doing, you know, they weren't used properly. Um, they have a lot to offer. AEW, hey, let's have Tony Khan scoop them up, um, which is true and everything. Uh, I see it. I see the bigger picture, which I want to get into. But with those cuts, were you shocked that Braun Strowman's gone uh, for yeah. WWE? Yeah, Braun's like probably like my second favorite like current WWE guy. It's like him. It's like Roman. Um, him. Like I was really excited, and it was like cool when we went to Raw, mm-hmm. which was like the last one of the last things we've been to. When he um just seeing him in person, and he was like a gigantic dude. 
but the thing that that sticks out that stands out to me is like all these guys were like people that have been recently in stuff. Mm-hmm. Buddy Murphy had his program, like you said, with Seth Rollins, and he was a part of the whole like Mysterio stuff where he was like dating like um, Rey Mysterio's daughter, and then Braun literally won the W the Universal title last year at WrestleMania. And he actually replaced Roman at WrestleMania because Roman was supposed to take on mm-hmm. Goldberg. Um, Alistair Black, you know, we talked a while back when his wife got fired, Zelina Vega. Um, Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And they kind of just started repackaging him. So these are all the dudes, like all people that have been like recently. Um, yeah. They, been, they, gave a, they gave him a new gimmick, Father Father Dark, or like a couple weeks ago, not even, maybe last week. Yeah, and it, you know, the last time we talked about WWE firings when they they um had their other big huge um <laughs> um expulsion, so to speak, or um purge. Mm, purge. I, I point back to the same thing. I, I think it's the the creative that's failing them. Like WWE is not like entertaining anymore. I I talked to to Mike about um Godfather, you know, him on Broken School Session where he was basically like, Yeah, like, you know, I've done different things, but I take I you know, I took I had my own ideas of stuff and they just let me run with it. Whereas like today it's just like the whole creative process seems kind of like stale. But Mike, you you had like your idea, yeah. and I I, I I think I'm agreeing with you. I'm I'm tend to agree with you on your idea of why this is happening. Well, from creative standpoint, it's like kind of it doesn't matter who's like portraying these characters anymore. It's kind of like it's creative has this storyline, uh, and they have these beats that they want to hit, and they're just putting in these different character these characters, and they, they don't care who plays the characters. Um, like you were saying with Godfather, uh, Charles Wright, he lived it. You know, he was like, "All right, this is me." Like he was, that was him. Uh, he was in the same. Him and his gimmick were, were, were him. So he lived it. wasn't He wasn't playing in this character that you would see like uh, like on a soap opera. You know, like uh, like you like soap operas. Um. So, we have all time low TV ratings. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. All time low. Um. All right. So you get rid of the people that are causing this. You know, no one wants to see these personalities. Okay. Um, well, the long thing um, is it's not going to change anyway. It's just like the whole structure of the product is is stale. And um, but even though it's all time low TV ratings, we got all time high profits. Okay. So we're going to go into why is that? Like, what's going on here? And a lot of the rumors is that WWE is setting itself up for a daytime sale mm-hmm. and the buyer would be universal um about a year ago uh you, you've heard of nick khan right yeah nick khan all right so uh all the moves that he's making is pretty much to bolster uh profits and uh minimize uh costs and it's like what, what you would see at like when, like if staples was selling they would like fire all the employees and, you know, just like shut down shops, but then they would have like the most 
highest grossing shops stay in like in towns and cities like stay around just so when the people that are trying to buy it they look at it and they go okay because two weeks ago wwe fired 60 uh, staff office staff uh, employees these are people that are actually legit you know um you know they get benefits and everything they're actual employees uh they were let go uh, okay so hear this out hear me out so we had peacock purchase a couple months ago crazy amount of money uh, but that's under the universal umbrella. Um, we have a show that airs after the A&E documentary biography series called uh, WWE Hidden Treasures. And the gimmick behind that is that they're looking for lost memorabilia and, you know, like Ric Flair's robe. Mm-hmm. And the goal of it, it's like, you know, the goal of it is, oh, because we're going to have it for our eventual physical Hall of Fame. And people have been saying that for decades, like 15 years, that's probably going to be in Florida. Uh, there is Universal Studios in Florida. Um, there are they are creating a new park. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be called uh, Epic Universe. Yeah. Have you heard of Epic uh, Universe? I've heard. Of it, All right. Yeah. So you know the. Not so too that's much, in two years. Not too much details have been given. So. Yeah. So if it goes to Universal, there you go. You have your physical uh, Hall of Fame in this new park by Universal. And you'll have my ass there at four years old going there. You know, I'll be there wearing mm-hmm. my uh, hats and stuff. So I see that's the most logical, maybe 5149 uh, or just totally just have Vince just on the board and then Stephanie on the board. Um, and what I thought two years ago was going to be Disney 2030 buying it because uh, it just feels like a Disney thing. Did you check out that zombie uh, spot they had for Army of the Dead at a backlash? They had actual zombies uh eviscerate and devour Miz. Yeah, I heard of it. I think it was the same night as the Knicks game, so I didn't uh, I didn't watch it live. Yeah, but I saw a couple of gifts. You you didn't see it live. That's cute. Mm-hmm. Uh but the zombies, uh, you know, so basically it's like, oh, this is all, you know, it's it's a movie too, you know. So um doesn't matter how, how much appeal you got an Alistair Black, people like him. Um if it's not feasible or they can find find someone cheaper um, with less baggage, because apparently there was some backstage stuff going on, you're, you're expendable. And we make movies, pal. Like, it's just going to be straight up just like another uh, arm of universal, um, which it has been for a long time where it's, you know, WWE is WWE and uh, it's not the same. So, um, any last thoughts on like the firings? I think um, there's supposed to be more. Uh, I think this is going to continue until, but they're going back on tour in July. They're going back to uh, shooting in arenas for uh, SmackDown and Raw. They're starting in Texas, and surprisingly, because I didn't think they were going to do this again, they're doing house shows too. So um, all the money that they uh, saved by staying in, uh, you know, renting out an arena, like they rented out a. Uh, uh, all state arena, I think, in, in Orlando. Uh, they rented it out. Yeah, so like they saved a lot of money. They became, you know, when 2020 started, oh my God, what's going on? They're going to go bankrupt, you know, the XFL and everything. And now they're having the most profits ever. And this might be the swan song for Vince McMahon. Um, but yeah, I'm just happy I'll see it. I mean, it's sad, it's sad to see it go, but, it, you know, um, it's not the same anyway. It's been gone for a long time in my mind as a as a fan. It's just it's just a, a brand WWE. Yeah, it, yes. it just pop in the watch. I don't really watch weekly 
pop in and watch like a pay per view every now and again. But it's it's yeah. again I, I, to me personally, I feel like it's create they're in like a creative like doldrum. And yeah. I don't know how you look at somebody like Braun Strowman and just have nothing for them to do. But it is what it is. He he's talented enough. He'll all of these people are actually really really talented. So they'll end up um landing on their feet. And I don't like to play the game because I don't want to. I don't like to play the game of oh they should have got rid of this person mm. instead of them because I just don't feel I don't like the idea of, like anybody losing their job. But uh, I I I just don't see a situation where like a Braun Strowman is like expendable but yeah so we'll, we'll see what, what happens in the future but and jobs aren't forever too but um, so you know again all right so a kid who's five years old um you're trying to get them to into the product at a young age so they grow up and one day they'll be like me at 30 um with me back in the day i grew up watching these characters in the 90s and in the late 90s one of the biggest ones was mick foley and um, this week, the A and E Legends, the WWE Legends episode was about Mick Foley, and uh, I went into this. Uh, you know, I felt like I knew a lot about Mick Foley. Uh, I read his books. Um, you know, one of the first things I bought with my own money, uh, early high school, like my actual money I, I earned, I bought uh, this the DVD, this you know the Mick Foley DVD. So I always appreciated him. I just kind of um, forgot how much of a fan I was of Mick Foley until I, until I watched this uh, biography again. Uh, Shug, what were your first thoughts on the uh, Mick Foley just in general? Uh, um, huge fan. Um, very, very intertwined with my childhood. Um, his very first episode of Raw I saw was him, um, the hospital scene where Mr. Sacco was introduced. I honestly wish I would have got into wrestling about a couple months earlier because then I would have seen um, his masterpiece, which was the Hell in a Cell match with Undertaker. And to this day, I've rewatched the Raws like preceding it. And I've tried to do my research and I still don't know why they were feuding. Yeah. They never gave like dude a- love. Yeah, there was never yeah. really like a clear. It was just like, all right, they're gonna fight in the hell. He was dude love. Yeah, he was like dude love with uh, in ninety in May. Like, he, and I know he went back to it. and He was like, what am I gonna do? That's a, that's a big part yeah, of. Yeah, and they never his like I we always, into. I always assume like he started. He he switched from like the burlap, um, outfit as mankind into the, you know, shirt and tie mankind because he joined the corporation, but it was like way before the corporation was even started. So they never really gave a story um, about that, like why he started wearing a shirt and tie. But, you know, the Hell in a Cell match up until, you know, recently when it's basically like its novelty is like gone because they make a whole like pay-per-view about it. Like it used to be like the big blow-up match because mm. it was more, you know, a steel cage used to be the big match. But they made a bigger steel cage. And so I was always curious as to why like him and Undertaker did it, but they did like such a great match. Um, 
Undertaker talked about it in Broken Skull. He talked about it in his um, WWE documentaries. So it was revisiting that. And then it was cool to see an appearance by Kevin James. Because I was always like a trivia thing that him and Kevin James went to the same high school. And kind of the only reason like Mick Foley was on the team was because he was the only person that could be like, um, could be the training partner with Kevin James on the wrestling team because they were the same. He was the only person not, not the only person that size and the only person that was that size and wanted to wrestle. Right. Oh, in Long Island, we should mention too, like mm-hmm. a local guy. Yeah. So. Uh, you mentioned Hell in a Cell, and kind of the backstory is that they didn't know what to do with Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, a.k.a. Dude Love, a.k.a. Cactus Jack. So they're like, uh, I don't know, we have nothing for you right now. Uh, Undertaker was, like, just coming off of uh, Wrestling Stone Cold. Uh, he won the belt, like, after WrestleMania 14. Uh, uh, Mick Foley was, like, Dude Love, uh, corporate Dude Love. Like, he, in a, in a short span of two and a half years, or two years, pretty much, he already recycled all his different gimmicks. He did the do love, and then he went back to being a corporate do love. Like he did, like what, what's next? And uh, which is the whole idea of the biography is uh, thinking outside the box, which mm-hmm. Mick Foley did. So it starts off, uh, and it's Mick Foley writing a book. Uh, he's he's telling his story. He's steering the ship. Is that he? St- he he was in control of this documentary. Like this is the only one. Closest was like Stone Cold, but he also felt like he was like brought in to talk about himself. Mick Foley, it felt like this was his project. Like he was um, going to tell you his story because he's a good storyteller. Um, so it goes back to thinking outside the box. He had a bad date. So what did he do? Did he sulk? No, he made a movie about it, you know, with his buddies. Mm-hmm. And that's something, you know, as a creative guys, we, you know, we like, uh, which is very important because that same home video that he did uh, when he was like 18 years old during college, 19, uh, later would – be instrumental into his uh, success as in the Attitude Era, uh, fifteen years later. Um, yeah, so like that's the idea of like I wish I could be Dude Love. It was all stemmed from a bad date where the girl at the end of the night called him Frank instead of Mick. You know, <laughs> which is you know relatable. It's like okay, he's you know he's a good looking guy and everything, but he was kind of like you know the boyish you know. So he wanted to uh, basically uh, change the narrative, and he. Um, basically went out there and had a far-fetched dream mm-hmm. outside the box for a guy from Long Island. Uh, went to a SUNY college. All right, this is what you're going to do. Get this job. No, no, no. He goes, oh, I'm going to try something different. So he gets into this uh, wrestling school by chance. Again, back then, it was like who you knew. Uh, they didn't show it, but uh, he got his ever-loving shit kicked out of him by the British Bulldogs. They didn't mention that. But it just shows you how like tough he was where he uh, was in the garden and the famous story that's been told to death done, you know, you know, they always tell the story that Mick Foley hitchhiked down to the garden to watch Jimmy Snuka jump off the cage. Uh, but it's very important because he was doing job ma- uh, enhancement matches as a jobber a couple years later, which is something, you know, very uh, admirable, you know, like, Hey, he, he got there in a couple years, you know? Uh, but again, um, there were so many other guys that were doing like enhancement matches and um, how am I going to stand out? Like Mick Foley always had to, uh, Hey, look at me over here. You know, like I'm different, but let me mm-hmm. show you why I'm different. You know, um, 
What did you think about that? Because that seems to be a theme that I saw. Yeah, I mean, one of the most famous quotes, um, or one of the most famous feuds in wrestling, like backstage, was Ric Flair and Mick Foley, because Ric Flair, in his biography, had written, or his autobiography had written, that Mick Foley was like a glorified stuntman. But when you saw Ric Flair on this documentary, it kind of made it seem like he said that, but it was coming out of like a place of like care, mm-hmm. like a caring place. It was like constructive criticism to say like, you know, you don't need to like do this. Cause he even said it, he was like, look at all the greats, like Bruno San Martino never had to go through a table you know, Hulk Hogan, how many times you see him do like uh, a spot like that? Um, so it wasn't like him saying like, all right, he's stupid for doing this. It's just like, nah, dude, like you, you're gonna, you're gonna really like hurt yourself. But Mick Foley, he, he put it, um, he basically chalked it up to knowing that like he had like an expiration date as far as like when he, you know, all right, I'm only gonna be able to wrestle the way I'm wrestling for like 10 years. But like you said, this is the only way, this is what I'm good at. And this is the way that, you know, people are going to, this is what people are going to know me for. Uh, You know, uh, all in, he went all in on it. You know, like I'm going to crash, crash and burn, or, you know, or he's going to go up and uh, become one of the greatest. Rick Flair didn't have to say anything. He could just look at them and just be like, all right, whatever. And just, but he didn't, he didn't have to say anything. But uh, Mick Floyd made such an impact, pun intended. Um, so another thing that made him stand out was out-of-the-box thinking, um, normal tag team matches. He would have a match in the late 80s. He was in uh, WCCW, Memphis, and WCW doing a couple of uh, spots here and there. And he would turn on his opponents. Like, how cool is that? That's hysterical to me. Like, uh, when they would lose or win, he would just go at the random guy they gave him and he just started being a shit out of his tag team partner at the end of the match because he was like unbalanced, mm-hmm. imba- you know, imbalanced. Another thing was, all right, he would jump off the apron onto the concrete because uh, infamously during this time, uh, WCW didn't have uh, didn't have ring mats because mm-hmm. uh, of Bill Watts. They took them away. So people were, you know, he's like, uh, people are wondering, how am I doing this? You know, like, what's the trick? And he's like, the trick is, um, there's no trick. I'm literally doing this. Houdini, mm-hmm. you know, I'm literally just hurting myself here and if, if you follow me on twitter and you type in my name and search my name and mick foley like i have so many tweets where i'm like mick foley's body must be made out of like adamantium like this man must be like invulnerable and it's like when you're watching like this document when you're watching this biography like you see him walking and it's like mick foley's probably like 62 or oh, like 55 yeah he's he's like yeah. in his 50s or 60s and he's walking like he's like 70 like 75 his... years old like he's hardly like walking around but you know what it all like ended up it all paid off because i always you know he has a beautiful family he has four kids a matter of fact i didn't even know he had two other kids outside of um Dewey and Noel, who like I knew from watching wrestling, and like I follow Noel on Instagram because she's fine. Um, 
And his wife, I was always like shocked when they showed like his wife because his wife is like beautiful. And it's like you look at him and it's like, and I always love like the story of how they met where he's like, yeah, I'm Cactus Jack. And she's like, who the hell is Captain Jack? And (laughs) she falls in love with him and like, you know, accepts him because Mick Foley is like the dude. And, you know, he had parts and when he was like writing, you know, uh, he had like his bracelets and one of them was like an autism speaks bracelet. Mm-hmm. And I just assume like he was wearing it because, you know, Mick Foley's, you know, awesome. And he probably does a lot of different stuff and works with a lot of different charities. And then come to find out, I kind of knew what was happening at mm-hmm. the time. Me too. Because I saw the, the, the way they were going with it. And you come to find out like his youngest son, um, Mickey, 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 yeah, he's he's, he's autistic, mm-hmm. so that spoke to me because you know I'm a relative, you know I'm a I have a sibling who's autistic, so that part talked to me, and he was just talking about you know it was the same type of thing where it's just like you know a lot of you you just okay this is what it is, how can I make life, how can I love this kid and how can I make life livable for this kid. You know, you're not, you know, cursing God and asking why. It's just, mm. you know, I have to do this. I'm his father, or in my case, I'm his brother. So, I, I you know, how can we do this? And I, that was really, it, it. I was already here with Mick Foley, and it just took me to the next, like, I, I couldn't love this person, you know, be a more bigger fan of uh, Mick Foley than I was until then. Yeah, and it was a wonderful reveal. Like uh, they were doing a cameo and his son was playing like happy birthday. And like, why the way he was talking to him, I was like, Oh, that's cool that they're doing it. And then they cut, cut back to a home video, which is well, you know, well done. And right away you see the signs where like uh sensory, you know, overload, you know, there, that's like a sign and it was well done. And um, I didn't know that about that. That's the one thing I didn't really know. And I was like, Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't know that he was a uh, volunteer for like a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Crisis line. Auto, yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of like he had the ticking clock of by 35, I want to be retired. He, he did it, uh, you know, but uh, real quick, going back to his actual career, like the way he stood out too was by blending his real life story with his character and with his, you know, career. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we mentioned already, Do Love came from a silly home video he did drunk, like a drunken uh, video he did with his buddies. You know, I have home, I have videos like that too from when I was like in like elementary school going, you know, uh, this actually ended up being, you know, uh, part of, part of wrestling lore, like do love. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then also when he, uh, he hit a, he hit a, hit a wall. Like we mentioned, Ric Flair was saying, you don't have to do this, uh, by 30, you're not going to be able to walk. Um, Eric Bischoff said he had a similar thing. He was in charge of WSW in early 94 and he saw a ceiling for him. And uh, Mick Floyd could have just t- taken the money and been a, just another forgotten character that did what he was supposed to do. But he went out of the box. He, he uh, instead of just taking the money, he decided to go to the unknown, uh, try it. So here you have the birth of uh, Mick Foley as like the hardcore extreme death match in Japan. C4 explosions with Terry Funk. Insanity, like, just stay away from me. I'm scared of you. Like, whoa. This mm-hmm. is real. And then at the same time, too, in ECW, he uh, was able to 
develop his storytelling abilities. And you mentioned his wife. Uh, I I never I don't I don't remember seeing this because um, I think I saw it like 15 years ago when the ECW DVD came out. But the footage of him at the amusement park and he's like, "Hey guys, I'm hardcore." She thinks I'm hardcore. I got the beautiful wife and like, like he just made me laugh. Like this was by 95, mm-hmm. and he was just like take, on the like, look, guys, I'm I'm, I'm hardcore. He's on like the uh, little silly like uh, amusement park ride. Yeah, and uh, he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to jump off things. And he goes, "We're gonna do a traditional." Greco-Roman collegiate NCAA rules. You know, he had a he was hysterical, making me laugh. And then, and he didn't have to ex- make himself explode, but he could. And it was funny because it had like, you know, they would talk about how like make didn't drink. He don't like do drugs. He don't party. He never went to strip clubs and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. when he was off, like he was reading books or mm-hmm. his time uh, off, he went back home and he was with his family, right? So at a part that they showed like a Christmas card and like half his hair, he's got his hair like tied back, but like his, like there's a patch of his hair missing because, you know, when he was mankind, he used to pull out his hair because he was like, you know, like a, like an insane person. So it got me thinking of like, you know, the, um, how fight, how fight club came to be like the author of fight club, he went on like a nature retreat or something like that and like he fell off like a cliff and like he he went away up in the woods for the weekend and he fell off a cliff and like hurt himself and came back all like bruised and battered and then he goes back to work and like an office Mm. and like nobody like he's you could see his acknowledged it yeah and nobody like acknowledged it and that's (laughs) how he came up with the idea of fight club it's like you know what if like on over the weekend like i'm like doing underground street fights so it was like the same that, like that was the thought when i saw like his christmas card mm-hmm. um but the thing about mick foley is like he, he taught me like i learned so many like just life lessons from wrestling him in particular because like you said in the last thing like i i, I watch soap operas so one of my favorite soap operas uh, they no longer it, it ended like 10 years now but one life to live they had a character named victoria lord so how i got into it was like my mom and sister used to watch that one so victoria she had like multiple personalities like she would change into like she was like she was like an affluent um like socialite uh matriarch in like the town and she had like a split personality because of like um different things that happened in her life growing up like sexual abuse from her father and stuff like that and she would switch like from personality to personality so when like my sister like explained to me like yeah she, she's this person now da, 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 da. like she switches so i was like oh so she's like mcfoley mm-hmm. <laughs> Because okay. of the three faces of Foley. Yeah. Got it right here. Yeah. And then um, the other thing was, they, they, this was the first time they ever talked about it and it wasn't like harped on, was him winning the championship. Hmm. And if you'd ever seen the WWF, WCW champion um, during that time, or before or preceding that it was always like some handsome 
bodybuilt dude. And here was this guy with this like mask and his wild hair and disheveled dress shirt and tie. And he was like, to me, I, I, I wrote it down as he, he was the champion of like the unconventional. And I think that was like good to see um, as an eight year old, because it got you to thinking like, it doesn't matter what you, you don't have to be like the m- most good looking guy or the most like in shape guy um, to be like a winner, to be a champion. And I say like, they didn't harp on it because every time you watch something where they talk about it, that was a night where 600,000 people switched from Nitro to Raw because Raw was pre-taped and Nitro was live and Nitro's, WCW Nitro's thing was to give away like the results. So like you wouldn't want to watch because you already knew what was going to happen. So at the moment, like Tony Schiavone on Nitro said, yeah, Mick Foley's, you know, who you know in our company as Cactus Jack is now the WWE champion, WWF champion at the time. And it was meant to be like in jest, like tongue in cheek. But at that moment, people were like, Mick Foley's winning a championship, switched over to USA and watched Raw. And it was like, you know, what kind of like turned the tide on Monday Night Wars. I watched it live. I was watching Raw to begin with. I remember. Mm -hmm. I remember it vividly. Me too. Uh, I don't think I was watching WCW that night. I was watching Raw. I was a WWE fan. Watching it right here. This is where the TV used to be. yeah um so like don't judge a book by its cover as a mick foley you know uh he's a great novelist uh he's a autobiographies um when he was Cactus jack he would read a book at the turnbuckle and when he was waiting to take his turn at the tag team match shows his love for uh, literature uh don't judge a book by its cover let's look at vince mcmahon when he saw him he was like oh he looks sleazy like he didn't give he didn't want to give McFoley a chance when he was Cactus Jack and he mm-hmm. saw him in Japan and in ECW and maybe in WCW clips that he saw. But he said uh, he said it. He was like he's so charming. Yeah, yeah. He won. Like, he's just won over he, the crowd. He, yeah. he wins people over. Yeah. So like Vince McMahon is the embodiment of like, wow, like he, this guy. He not a lot of people have it. He has it. Like he has a connection with the people. Uh, and he think about the time wise. You know, like he he did it so quickly. He had this ticking clock in his in his head that he wanted to retire at this certain time. And if you go from when he left WCW, he did Japan, ECW for a year, Mankind for a year and a half. He was due love the next summer. Um, later that summer, he was Cactus Jack with Triple H. Uh, two years after he started in WWF, he was like, what am I going to do now? Like, he never went back to that old Mankind. He went into this new weird Mankind where he's wearing his real clothes He's a mixture of Mick Foley and this character. Uh, he had another wall. I just almost killed myself on TV. What's there to do now? Okay, I'll pull a sock out of my pants. Mm-hmm. That was four months later. Imagine that now with a guy, like, in that short amount of time. It's, mm-hmm. it's like basically when AEW launched till now, this guy's career, WF career. That's how quick it went. Mm-hmm. And he did everything. And then so in full 98, he's doing the Sako thing. And then... Uh, he kind of transitioned into this Mick Foley. Like he became Mick Foley, this guy. Um, and then he, three faces of Foley, true. Uh, he has another one. He has another alter ego, Santa Claus. <laughs> All right. So he, everyone knows uh, that, that uh, know a little bit about Mick Foley is that he loves Christmas. <laughs> uh, 
he actually wrote a Christmas book that I have uh, illustrated by Jerry Lawler. Uh, and that was way in the beginning. That was like in like 98, 99. And um, Vince McMahon uh, was talking about how like only Mick Foley could be, you know, Santa Claus. Like, it's great. Like, and I was thinking about it. I'm like, how perfect is it that a wrestler in-ring career ends pretty much? Um, who better, what other character to be than Santa Claus? Because what do you hear when you're growing up? Oh, wrestling's fake. And then you hear Santa Claus. He's not real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you're a kid and when you want to believe, you want to believe, oh, it's kayfabe, man. Santa Claus is real, man. You better go to sleep. Mm-hmm. You told your younger brother, younger cousin, go to sleep. Santa Claus ain't going to come here. You know, like you got to kayfabe it. Um, and it's good to see. I know there's a documentary about him being Santa and um, visiting people. Uh, that just shows that. Uh, and then I got the glimpse at the end of the documentary. I was like, wow, it's the first time I saw him. And I'm like, man, he got, you know, he's, he's old now, man. It's like weird. Because mm-hmm. you always seem like, he ended early. He retired so early that he always was like young, even though yeah. he was battered. But I started thinking his eye. I'm like, uh, let's keep an eye on him because uh, uh, you can tell like his kids are, he's very close to his kids still. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe there's things that they're not saying where maybe he's having those moments where he said he was like in the basement by himself and he didn't want to live like that. So he started doing more uh, volunteer work and stuff. And uh, that that's a sign of someone who has like uh, trauma from, throwing your body around like where he might have blackouts and stuff like that so uh he did so much so far though that that we can uh, you know remember and when when i say like his and it was because they somebody posted a clip of um when he was in wcw and he kind of like rolled over like flipped over like two barricades like he rolled he got hit into one, flipped over one, and then flipped on another one, and then fell on the floor. And I was like, "Man, his bones got to be made out of adamantium." Because then, when you look at the King of the Ring, Hell in a Cell match, like again, the man puts his body through like hell. But you know, he's a person I talk to talk about in like reverence because he seems like an all around like great dude. Even Kevin James, when he was talking about him, he's like, yeah, like, Mick Foley, like, Mick's, like, got a heart of gold. Um, And then Ric Flair, he said, you know, you talk about Mick Foley and him thinking outside of the box. And he's like, he played three guys at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Which means three different action figures, Mm -hmm. which means three different shirts. So, yeah, like, the Cactus Jack, like, wanted poster shirt. Had your tie-dye dude lover shirt, and then you had your smiley face, big foldy or uh, mankind shirt, and all of those was being sold at the same time. And you you gotta remember too that WWE was the, in WCW. You got you got like the guaranteed money, but in WWE you made a lot of money off of like merchandise. That mm. used to be like Vince McMahon's thing, and that's why when you watch WWE, um today you watched it in the early 90s you always saw guys wearing shirts with their face or like their logo or their phrases on it because that's where they used to get the money from from the the concession stands and the little merchandise tables and stuff like that because for every like shirt you sold you got like you know 25 cents or something like that so he was, you know, so on nights, you know, let's say they were making like 25 cents a shirt. So that means he had three different shirts in circulation. Um, and all of us were, were marks. 
they probably had a lot of people who was like, I wanted a Mick Foley, I wanted a Mankind shirt, a Dude Love shirt, and a Cactus Attack shirt. And, and they, and they were ambiguous, on. too. They were ambiguous. Like, you didn't know if they were a heel or babyface. Because, like, Dude Love, you, you want to be Dude Love, but he also was, like, fighting Stone Cold. But you still wore his shirt because you liked him. Cactus mm-hmm. Jack was kind of that, like, guy, you know, which way he was going to go. Mankind started off as, like, a monster heel for Undertaker. He turned that into something different. He made, he turned that into, you know, the career. <laughs> he was just supposed to be, like, a... There was a there was a uh, like an axe murder type character that was Barry Gore um, Barry Gordy, uh, Bam Bam uh, Terry uh, Gordy. Um, he didn't do anything with that. It was just a character that uh, you know Undertaker was just going to take care of in a month. Mm-hmm. He, he turned it into something you know special. And he he live forever because um, it got like a meme. You know that meme where like it's like a guy at a party and he's like yelling into like a girl's ear. Oh yeah. Or, yeah. or there's the one where they're like at a baseball game and he's like, you know, it's a guy like talking to a girl, and the girls look at like she doesn't want to like she's like confused by what he's saying. So they have the one where it's like, yeah, he came out as Cactus Jack. He was it's like in the 1998 Royal Rumble, he came yeah. out as Cactus Jack, got eliminated, then came back as Dude Love. Then got eliminated. Then came back as Mick Foley. So he was three. He got eliminated three times. And yeah, Mick Foley is a great man. Now, now, now this one, uh, I was, uh, the, the, you know, we we talked about the different ways, um, they've done them and how they've treated the subjects. I thought this one was probably like the most fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um. Open and shut, you know, like from beginning to end, satisfying. Satisfying is a good word. It didn't leave any questions out. Like, you know, we 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 rambled about Warrior. Like we uh Macho Man opened up a uh, a can of worms about like how, you know, like this one was just satisfying. It was an hour and a half. That's McFoley. There you go, you know. And the next one should be Oh yeah. Fairly entertaining because it will be Brett the Hitman Heart and he doesn't hold thing back <laughs> yeah i can't wait for that one all right episode 55 double nickel mike final thoughts all right episode 55 uh hell of a ride um i mean it's been a long eight years to see that nick win again uh that was a fun game two in the garden uh i'm gonna hold on to that and i want more i'm not satisfied um I'm not content. I want more, and I'm happy to, uh, with the direction the Knicks are going. I don't see it like I don't see it happening where uh, we had chances and then we completely obliterate it, start all over. I have a good feeling about this, and um, you know, with um, Tulsa race massacre, uh, any any opportunity to talk about history, history is not pretty. Um, the important thing. To, to remember is that this was on we watched doc, two documentaries one on the history channel and one on cnn and i keep bringing that up because it's it's history yes but it's also living history it's also present day the future um so it's very important for everyone to uh check these out um it, go look at the con go watch the congress uh footage from a week ago of three survivors uh, 100 years old, 106, 107. Because uh, you can read the books. You're actually looking at someone who lived through it, mm-hmm. which is much like the Ken Burns documentaries. But this is like, you know, this is now. It's crazy. Um, 
WWE firings, uh, future endeavors. By the time this comes up, who knows if more people are let go. I think in the long run, uh, I see this as WWE uh, not completely selling to Universal, but they've already been in a working relationship for 40 years. So I don't see much changing. Just ownership, just like the details yeah, will change. I don't know if he's over NBC, but him and Vince are like tight. Yeah, well, USA Network, uh, USA Channel, they've been on that since the early 80s. Um, so I don't see much things, I don't see a lot of things changing. Uh, I think just like the legal and the financial part is going to change. Um, it's always going to be the same culture at WWE, even though uh, you might have like Universal being like the, the actual like umbrella. But Stephen McMahon has been training for like 15, 20 years to be the next Vince McMahon. And uh, she has her corporate lingo down and she knows how to talk corporate. So um, it's still going to be a carny circus family owned for decades, century, but it's going to be officially like a corporate uh, Hollywood. They're finally going to be making movies like they always wanted. Mick Foley, pleasantly surprised. Um I think I was in a good mind, uh, state of mind to watch it. I'm glad that they switched uh, airing dates. Like normally, this was going to air last week. Um, I think uh, I was in a really good mood when I watched it last night. So uh, it reminded me. Uh, it reminded me how much uh, I appreciated Mick Foley and how much of a big deal he was for me as a kid. Uh, when I was reading a lot of the books, um, I was in college, and uh, instead of scrolling through Twitter, I was like reading books. I would stay up online just like read books. And a lot of them are wrestling books too. And I read three of his books and he's a great storyteller. He did it in books. He did it in the ring. Uh, I appreciate what he's doing now. I didn't know a lot of things he was doing with uh, the volunteer work and um, the Santa Claus thing is a beautiful thing too. Uh, if I had the ability, I, I am going to do it one day. My, my goal is to be more uh, chari- charitable in the future. Uh, I just have to get my own shit together first, probably. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's my final thoughts on that. Yeah. So I'm gonna continue on with Mick Foley, because um, because you inspired me there. <laughs> but Mick Foley is um, just an all around great dude. Um, always loved him growing up as as a WWE fan. Um, as we said, his you know, heights of him being like WWE champion was around the same time that I started. So that's why I think I'm, you know, closely associated, closely associated, um, my fandom with wrestling with a person like Mick Foley. Um, his inspiration, inspirational within the ring and outside of the ring with, you know, his charitable work. Uh, watching him showing, and, and he's still like putting smiles on children's faces. Like that was one of the beautiful um, parts of the documentary at the end, where he's he shows up at these kids' house. He just, he's driving yeah. like a suburban, <laughs> no. driving an SUV, dressed as Santa Claus. Like, he just shows like, up. No, like he's about, like he got caught. That's my favorite part is that the kids like caught him. Like he was like, waiting for them to see. Oh shit, you caught me! Like that was my favorite part, you know. Yeah, and those kids like they 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 they're like hugging on him and they're so like happy to see him. And you know he's putting a smile on their faces for like a whole different reason than you know him getting like taking like eleven cheer shots. 
to the head <laughs> um, and not entertaining me as a kid. So I'm glad he's doing that now and he doesn't have to do, you know, what he was entertaining me with as, as a child. But as I said, inspirational person. Um, and he's a New Yorker, so that, that's why he he's um he's near and dear to me and Mike. Um, baseball moving forward, I'd love for them to have a lot more. Like, if they're gonna have guys from, you know, yesteryear calling games, I'd prefer them to be like David Cohn and not like Bob Brenly. Like, just fun and entertaining, entertaining and engaging. Um, and not just not alienating people and talking about how the game is supposed to be and it's not like, you know, how it was when he was growing up or whatever. Like, that's the not natural progression of things. Like, things change over time and people are going to be different. Like, I'd assume, like, 20 years from now, you're going to start seeing a lot more, you know, people of different races and different body types and um lgbt there'll probably be a lot more like openly gay and openly bisexual players and you know if you have people like bob brenly you know calling games like people are not gonna want to be in this sport you know in general and the knicks it was just great like i know it was like not the ending we we hoped for but you know I'm enjoying basketball. You know, if you if you've been listening to us from the beginning, like I was very disenamored with the NBA. I'm to the point now, like I was watching other like playoff games, and I usually ignore the playoffs. I like watch, you know, just at the end when like LeBron's losing in the finals, or if it's like a really tight like finals game, like I'll pop in and watch. But now, like that, I could watch basketball from you know opening night to like the end of the NBA finals, you know, rooting for guys, rooting against guys. Uh, that's, that's the beauty of it. Like when your team is good, it gets you involved. If your team has been as bad as the Knicks has been, it's like, all right, every other team, good stuff is happening for them, but it's never happening for us. And like I said, we're not done. We're not done. Shout out to Knicks Illustrator on Twitter. Check out his stuff and, and get, grab some more of this merch. Um, the firings, man, they suck, man. Like, I, I really, like, love watching Bronson Roman. I'm a huge fan. I've been a, been a big fan from the time he left, like, the Wyatt family, and he was on his own. Like, he's a massive dude. Like, I saw him in real life. Like, he's 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 huge, and I, th- I felt like there was a lot more you could have done with his character, but hopefully he lands on his feet somewhere. Who knows? Maybe he might end up being after they sell, if they're selling – Maybe he'll end up back in WWE, um, as well as the rest of the people who've been on um, future endeavor future endeavored. Um, hopefully they, you know, land on their feet. I would love to see Lana back with Rusev. I don't know what he's been. He's another person when he got fired. I was like, yeah, they weren't they, he they, that was somebody I thought they failed too. So maybe hopefully they'll reunite on um all elite. And Tulsa, I think talking about the past, like Mike said, it's not something like a lot of like the conservatives and the Fox News is of the world. Like anytime you talk about history and you just tell the truth, um, 
they keep on saying like they're trying to make people hate this country or hate American history, and it's like, well, perhaps that's that's what's needed because you know I don't I, I think it's just like therapy. Like when you go to a therapist's office, like you don't just talk about what you're gonna do going forward. You talk about where you've been and your experiences, so it can make you a better better person walking out of the therapist's office. And I think America needs therapy and they need to you know unload and get the baggage out in the open and let's openly discuss these things because i mean think of it this way like a lot of conservatives they like to say black people don't you know they 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 live off of like welfare or they always want to hand out they don't do things for themselves and yeah and they're always saying like we don't do for ourselves and here's like an example of black people literally at an even worse period of history for African Americans than now, if you know, that were were excelling, not only doing, they were excelling at you know doing for themselves. And as I said in the segment, the one part that that stuck out for me was the part in the LeBron Tulsa documentary on CNN where they were saying, you know, like people would look on the other side, you know, white people would look on the other side of the tracks and look at the black side of the town and see black people driving nice cars and wearing furs and, you know, tailored suits and stuff like that. And I was just like, you know, can't have that. So I had a fun time doing this episode. I think we did a lot of great stuff. We got a lot of awesome stuff um, on YouTube. I dropped um, the Porky's retrospective that we shot like months ago that I totally forgot about. But so hopefully a lot of people check that out. It's fun discussion. Um, Interesting facts about the movie and just, you know, commentary on it from a 2021 perspective. Um, And we got a lot more other stuff coming out. We, me and Mike shot, you know, some new content that should be out soon. Mike's got some segments. If you've missed them in past episodes, they're coming out soon. So um, look out for episode 56 of our show. And this has been episode 55 of Shug Mira Mooney. Shug Mira Mooney. Shug Mira Mooney.